Understanding that weird book of Revelation, this is part three. I want to look again at the theme of chapter two and chapter three. Chapter two and chapter three, I started just looking at last week how they deal with these uh, seven local congregations. They were actual congregations, like the congregation at Laodicea, at Smyrna, Pergamum, Ephesus, like the congregation at Newmarket. It was like this church. So these letters are not written to the church universal, the church, capital C. These are letters written to local congregations. Last week we saw these, uh, you know, these great church chapters, 2 and 3 of Revelation. They're, they're kind of introduced with Jesus walking among these lampstands. And we're told that those are the churches. Lampstands, it's significant that they represent the presence of the church in this world. So churches uh, are meant to cast light. I mean, that's what a lampstand is for. Churches are to shine a light into specific areas for our culture where they will be totally ignorant apart from the revelation of God's word. Churches are meant to cast light into the darkness of this world because it's soon going to be a judged world. We'll see that in just a few weeks. So here's our role. We have the dual responsibility. Really only two things you're on earth for. You're on earth for two things. To walk in the light and to shine the light. That's your calling in this world. You might be a mechanic, you might be an architect, you might be a plumber, you might be a lawyer. That's what you do. But the reason you're here is to walk in the light of Jesus Christ, that they might see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, and to shine the light, an uncompromising message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, think about this. Here's what you have in chapters 2 and 3 of Revelation. This is 60 years after Pentecost. That's not a totally humongous passing of time. 60 years after the birth of the church, after the day of Pentecost, the ascension of Jesus, and Jesus is walking among his lampstands, these seven local congregations. And 60 years after the birth of the church, the burden of our Lord's heart is five out of these seven churches are not functioning in the way they were created to function. 60 years. Five out of seven. Not firing on all cylinders. Missing it on key important points. Now, what does that mean after 2000? When you extrapolate it out. I see Jesus confronting... I'm going to... These aren't from the text. These are mine. This is my terminology. Three spiritual life destroyers in his church. And, and as we look at it in these seven local congregations, it's, it's not for the purpose of just historical interest, but because I think the reason these are 
inspired by the Holy Spirit, included in the revelation of Scripture, is these same uh, terminal viruses infect the church in all ages. These seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3, they're examples of the kind of dangers that the church faces down through the years. Here are, we'll look at them. The three terminators of spiritual life and light lampstands in the local church. Danger number one. And we will go through and just pick a smattering of uh, warnings and cautions that are given to the seven churches. Danger number one, the substitution of activities for priorities. The substitution of activities for priorities. Revelation 2, 2 and 3. Church at Ephesus. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Interestingly, Jesus doesn't say, who are you to be so judgmental? That's a contemporary response, not a New Testament one. You've tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Now, there's just, there's just no mistaking our Lord's praise for the diligence of this church in Ephesus in certain areas. They had works to, to back up their words. They were busy in ministry. I know your works. They were disciplined in the things that they did. They weren't quitters. I know your endurance. You have not grown weary. He says they were concerned about doctrinal purity. You have tested those who call themselves apostles and, and are not. And none of those things is, is uh, an insignificant accomplishment. They're all important ingredients to any sound New Testament church. Jesus is going to tell them they've left their first love. And the important point here is not not one of these accomplishments, and I don't mean to downplay any of them because they're highly praiseable, but not one of these compliments alone can sustain relationship with Jesus by itself. And that's what Jesus is dealing with as he walks among these lampstands, these precious local congregations. He's reminding them of of things that are crucial, but sometimes lost in the background, taken for granted. You can be doctrinally pure and um, have love for Christ cool in your heart. You can be busy in a church, and you ought to be, and have love for Jesus cool in your heart. Sound teaching, sound doctrine is crucially important, but 
by itself, it doesn't ensure passionate spiritual life. It lays the foundation for it. It opens the door for it. You can't have solid spiritual relationship with the Lord without knowing who he is and understanding what he's done. So, so doctrine's vitally important as a first step into love for Christ, but it doesn't ensure it. It doesn't guarantee it. This actually becomes even more obvious when you look at Jesus' words to another congregation, the church at Sardis. That's in Revelation 3, 1 and 2. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I talked about that last Sunday night. I won't go into it again. I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. Then he says, For I have not found your, this is the Lord speaking, for I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. I, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive, but, but you are dead. So there's, there's some significance in words like that. Deeds, deeds only have meaning, deeds only have significance, deeds only have transforming power when they come from a heart that is, that is alive with a love for Jesus. And... and this is something, if you look at our culture and its assessment of a church, it will measure the value of any church in any community by the hungry fed and the naked clothed and the works of compassion done for the needy, all of which is important. No argument from me. But what Jesus says to this church is, you've got all of those works. The problem is, you, your trust and faith are are more embedded in those works than they are in me as the giver of spiritual love and life and, and grace. Without the attachment to the Lord, 3.2, deeds will not be found complete in the sight of God. And, and Jesus, Jesus feels the need to tell these two churches... So far, Ephesus, Sardis. That there's something they're not seeing. A church can have deeds and be dead. A church can have works and be incomplete. Our world measures everything by works. But, but they aren't enough. That's what this first danger is all about. The, the, the danger of substituting activities for priorities. That's the first point. It can happen at a corporate level and it can happen on an individual level. You know these words, Matthew 7, 22, 23. On that day, Jesus says, we'll look at that day in the book of Revelation. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And, and I will declare to them, Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. Casting out demons? Mighty works? 
And, and how does it work that, that an individual and a church can get embedded in pursuing all sorts of works while, while not spending time at the feet of Jesus? And so Jesus tells us that on Judgment Day, a few weeks we'll look at that, one of the, one of the primary sources of confusion, one of the primary sources of consternation will be people who have interpreted their activity for Jesus as relationship with Jesus. And they're going to discover that activity is not a substitute for relationship. And so, first, this Revelation comes to John of these seven churches and these two churches, Ephesus and Sardis. And Jesus expresses, he exposes this deadly virus that that can affect careless congregations. The tendency to, to learn to do the things we do. I, 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 uh, I fear that. To learn to do the things we do to learn to do them better and better, and even to attract a crowd because we learn to do the things we do better and better. And this, you won't get anything from me objecting to a crowd. The more the better. But it's easy to get to the point where we learn how to do what we do and there's something of a dependency on the Lord and a sensitivity to his presence. You've probably known couples who have had their marriage fall apart because gradually over the years they just allow themselves to go through the motions of what was once a passionate relationship. Let him who has ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Never forget or forsake Jesus' call to answer the first priority. That that he is loved and adored with all our hearts. I shared with you before, Sunday mornings especially, I kind of wait until everybody's gone. It doesn't always work. And then I'm, I'm out in just the reception area by the door and I have those blinds closed so people can't see what a weird person their pastor is. And I, and I wander and kind of think and pray a bit. And I look out that window, and especially at about 5 to 10, there's usually a lineup of about 40 cars. They're all piling in here at the last minute. So you just stand there and you see car after car after car. They're all pulling into the parking lot. And every once in a while, I just stop and I think, how on earth, how on earth do you fulfill the summons to keep all these people sensitive to God in the middle of church how do you keep everybody sensitive to God all right I talked about that enough danger number two the toleration of sexual impurity he deals with these issues in two other churches the church at Pergamum and the church at Thyatira let me just put the passages Together, okay? It's Revelation 2.14. And then we'll read verses 20 to 22. 
I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam. I'm going to talk about that. Who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. 220. Thyatira. I have this against you, that you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality, to eat food sacrificed to idols. I gave her time to repent. She refuses to repent of her sexual immorality. Behold, this is Jesus, by the way. So all these people that you're reading in some of these newer books where you need to read the Bible through the lens of Jesus, not the God of judgment and wrath in the Old Testament, but Jesus who just loves everybody and accepts everybody. Okay? If you read a lot of stuff I mentioned this morning by Brian Zahn is going down this road. Brexit Cavey goes down this road. A good number. Reading through the lens of Jesus, it's different. This is Jesus, right? Jesus is the speaker. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. And those who commit adultery with her, I will throw into great tribulation. Jesus. It's not Old Testament. This is the last book in the New Testament. Unless they repent of her works. Now, I know you're going to point out there are all sorts of sins mentioned there. But, but this, the one that's repeated in both churches is the sin of immorality, sexual immorality, and the church's tolerance of immorality. That's the repeated emphasis in the two congregations. Two individuals are mentioned in these, in these texts. Balaam, 2.14, and Jezebel, 2.20. I find it interesting that we never get away from the mindset of Balaam in the Bible. His actual story is in the book of Numbers, and his name is still mentioned in the last book of the Bible, Revelation. So what is so significant about Balaam? A lot of you will know his story from Numbers 25. Balaam was a man who, who seemed to have a genuine kind of prophetic bent ministry. But he liked to live in two worlds at the same time. The king of Moab tried to hire Balaam, paid him money to come and curse the Israelites... But God wouldn't let Balaam do this. Every time Balaam tried to curse the Israelites, blessing came out. It's my, one of my favorite passages when people come up to me. I I've, haven't had it happen a lot in 35 years, maybe three times, where someone's come up to me and told me someone had put a curse on me. And then someone else asked me, am I afraid? Am I worried? I had, I had two people come to my office with prophetic words that I was going to die and all this stuff. And then other people, I don't know what they thought I was going to do. And I, I love the story of Balaam. You do whatever you want. Like God, God is the one who blesses life. And the evil one does not touch him. I, I don't even think about those things. So here, here's Balaam. The king of Moab hires him to curse Israel. And when Balaam found he couldn't curse the Israelites, he decided to corrupt them instead. And later on you find he sets up feasts at Baal Peor, where the men of Israel would come and fall into sin with the daughters of Moab. And as a result, as a result, God slew 24,000 Israelites. 
Balaam himself is also slain. You can read that in Numbers 31, verse 8. Balaam had requested to die the death of the righteous, and that request was never granted. That's Balaam. He's constantly infected the church. He still does. He's a reminder of all sorts of people who want to die righteous, but don't want to live righteous. They want to talk about God. They want to talk about the blessing of God. They want to talk about the grace of God. They want to talk about the love of God. They want God to answer their prayers. They want to go to heaven when they die, but they, but they don't want to honor the Lord, especially with their sexual lives. That's, that's the spirit of Balaam. Balaam and Jezebel both led the people of God into sexual immorality. And they both tried to justify their sexual wickedness. And so Jesus now, now years later, as he walks among the church, he sees sees this tendency. It's not that sexual sins are worse sins in terms of damning effect. It's that they're most commonly fallen into and they're most commonly justified depending on the tone of the culture in which we live. My experience is that people who want to commit some kind of sexual sin in the church will always find some extenuating circumstance. Some special dispensation from God. Some way of continuing in something that will never fit into the Christian life. I can't tell you the number of times I've counseled people in my office who were not only involved in areas of sexual permissiveness that clearly weren't appropriate, but they were convinced that they had some special license from God to indulge those sexual sins. That's what Jesus sees in these churches. The church doesn't understand Jesus at all. The church doesn't understand Jesus at all unless the church, this church, understands that God still calls all of his people away from any kind of sexual immorality. Any kind of sexual immorality. That's not just for young people. That's for me. That's for you. That's for all of us. He will never partner with it. You can't indulge immorality on the television or the internet and then feel consistent and clean when you come before the Lord and worship, you, you'll, you'll destroy your soul. Danger number one, substituting activities for priorities and a love for Jesus. Danger number two, sexual permissiveness. As the standards of culture change, moral purity before the Lord is made to look more and more ridiculous. Am I right? Moral purity is made to look more and more ridiculous. That part of the temptation is, is, is uh, that, that cultural pressure is probably more felt if you're under 35 than if you're over 50. It's not that they're holier over 50. It's just that when you've been around that long, you start to see how... how you can look back over your life and see how goofy culture has been over and over and over again. And when you're younger, you just don't, it's nothing about intelligence. It's just you haven't lived long enough to see how ridiculous the direction of culture usually is. And so, and so they work at making 
millennials and younger, they work at making them feel ridiculous at the moral standards of the New Testament. Don't fall for it. Danger number three. The fallacy that outward success is is synonymous with the blessing of God. Two different references, the church at Smyrna and then Laodicea. Two very different sets of circumstances. They're they're contrasted, but it's the same problem in each church. Revelation 2.9. Smyrna. I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. And the slander of those who say that they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. I'll talk about that another time. We'll come back to that. 3.17. Laodicea. For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. Not realizing. Those are the important words. They're not rebellious. It's just they can't, they can't feel the weight. They can't feel the reality of their own. You're, you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. But they, they can't feel that because... And I'm not picking on you if this is you. I'm just using it as an illustration. They can't feel that because they, they drive to church in a Porsche. And it's very hard to feel wretched, pitiable, poor. Church at Smyrna. It's really ironic, isn't it? That in one case the people said they were poor... I know your tribulation and your poverty, but you're rich. So, in one case, the people said they were poor, and Jesus has to tell them, no, no, you're richer than you think. In the other case, the people said they were rich, and Jesus actually had to say, no, 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 you're, you're pitiable. So, in different directions, it's the same mistake being made in both situations. In, in each case... These churches and the people in these churches, they were measuring their spiritual condition by their outward circumstances. Don't do that, Jesus says to the church. The first mistake, the church at Smyrna, it's probably slightly less dangerous than the second. But there's still a lesson to be learned. Never interpret the difficult times in your life as proof that somehow you are unloved and unnoticed by Father God. You wouldn't have to say that, except there are, there's a whole wing of theology in the church that is so quick to jump on people who have sustained uh, difficult seasons in life and just attribute them to either a lack of faith, a lack of victory, a lack of trust in God, and a host of other things. Don't fall for that. Don't fall for that. How many of us do that at times? We, we beat ourselves up because we're going through a season of illness and we get convinced that we must not have enough faith. We find our children reaching an age where they make their own decisions and parents feel like they've been lousy parents. We go through a time of persecution for our faith and then we allow the spirit of the age to convince us we're somehow intolerant. We're unloving people. When trials come, keep yourself, keep yourself in the love of God. Keep your heart pure and keep yourself in the love of God. 
The situation at Laodicea is probably more serious and more dangerous. That's in 17 and 18 of chapter 3. You, you, you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing. Remember the parable Jesus told the guy? Soul, take your ease. You build bigger barns, you got your stuff stored, take your ease. Same idea. So this is the same Jesus, so we would expect him to say the same thing, and he does. You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, I need nothing, not realizing you're, you're wretched. Now there's a world of difference between needing nothing and being wretched. Wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to, to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourselves and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes that you might see. These people, notice, they needed help to see properly. They, they, they just didn't get it. They, they had everything but a sense of Humble dependency. A crying out to the Lord. They had filled their lives so full that there was almost no room for hunger for God. Does that sound relevant to our culture at all to you? Does it sound relevant to the church today? Just, I just don't, I don't need... I'm good. I'm good for retirement. I got, I, got my, I got my RRSPs and my GICs. I got investments. My house is paid for. I got a couple nice cars. Kids are doing well. You're, you're no. <laughs> That's where this beautiful invitation, these words of invitation come in that we almost, well, for years for years have been misapplied. Revelation 3.20. It's the same church. It's that church at Laodicea. Behold, Jesus speaks. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, significant. Do you remember the, the very first point tonight where I said you, you don't substitute activities for priorities and the priority of intimacy with the Lord, a hunger for the Lord. And a, and, a, and a walking in his grace and in his presence. And so he says, he's, here's this church that couldn't see its own neediness. And he says, I stand at the door and knock, and they, but you have to hear. You ever, you ever gone to somebody's house and there's something going on, the stereo's loud or the TV's loud, and you stand there and you can't get anybody's attention? They're all there. Everybody's busy. Everybody's doing their thing. Hello? That's Jesus. And, and, the, and, and inside, you know who it is? It's the church. Hello? Hello? If, any, if anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in. Can you imagine? Jesus coming to the church saying, can I, can I, can I come in? I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We usually think of those words to the unsaved. I grew up with a plaque on the wall in the kitchen. Hideous looking thing. I'm sorry. It's just a hideous looking thing. 
and it's and it's like a there's this branch kind of going around and there's a door there and there's Jesus standing on the outside really good looking and a yellow there's a there's like a glow around his head he always had one of those around his head and it's revelation 3:20 and and the idea behind it was he's knocking on sinners hearts Swing your heart's door widely open, we used to sing. Bid him enter while you may. I'm not saying it's untrue. I'm saying don't quote that verse because it's not what it's about. These are church words. These are words, these are words written to Cedarview. To people like us. If they were written to anyone on earth, they're written to a church like ours. They're, 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 they're written to people who have made room for almost everything else to the danger that Jesus gets squeezed more and more to the edge. And so for all these fatal flaws, Jesus calls these churches, these local specific congregations, just like ours, he, he calls them to a, a deep and a thorough repentance. And, and I use that word carefully. I say thorough because to me it's significant that these churches almost seemed incapable of, of self-diagnosing their position. You don't realize that you're blind. You don't realize that you're missing me. And that should alert us to the need of it should alert us to the need of waiting on God. We'll do prayer groups tonight. How many times does Ron come up here and he gives us this list of needs, usually physical needs, and that's fine. That's good. We ought to be doing it, and we do. But in how many prayer groups tonight will people cry out to God and say, Oh, God, our church, remove anything of blindness in our church, anything of coldness in our church, anything of laziness in our church, Anything of spiritual indifference and apathy in our... Anything of sexual immorality in our church. Anything of misplaced priorities in our church. It should alert us to the need of waiting on God with a humble, almost, almost self-suspicious heart. That it's very likely that we miss things that Jesus sees. And, and maybe, maybe, that kind of heart preparation is what Jesus means by opening the door. You don't have a door on your heart. It's a picture of, of that kind of self-examination, that kind of carefulness, that kind of slow looking at what's going on in our hearts. At any rate... These three terminators of spiritual life, here's what we know for sure. They never just run their course like the flu and then leave. They, they, need, to be, they need to be sought out. They need to be forsaken and repented of. Sixty years after Pentecost, in five out of seven churches, Jesus calls... His church, not the world, he calls his church five out of seven times to repent of things they hadn't been noticing. Every once in a while, 
I think, I think we get better in the church at, at calling sinners to repent. Outsiders to repent. Than this kind of repentance. The beautiful thing is, this is not a negative study. This is... This is, you can have all sorts of books, cultural opinions on the church and what the church should be like and what the church should be doing and all sorts of new, new trends and different situations. But the nice thing here is what you have is Jesus, God the Son, as he walks among his redeemed church. There's nobody who knows church like Jesus knows church. Let's pray.